Alright, for us, let us turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to jump right in. Uh, we are in a series on Samuel. Not just 1 Samuel, but both 1 and 2 Samuel, which as you know, is a unified work. And so today, as I, as I try to do like a Netflix type title, it's like S1.16 through 31, all right? So I don't know if that works, but it's like season one, you know, 16 through 31. All right, so we're going to cover quite, we're going to binge a little bit today, I'll just be honest with you, on the narrative that is before us because we are in fact covering 16 through 31. Those are chapters, not verses. And, uh, and so we're going to, as I've been saying, do a bit of a flyover of Samuel while keeping in mind a few things. One of which is this, as you're turning to, again, 1 Samuel 16. One is this, in general, like when you get the big uh, orbit view, if you will, of the space view here of Samuel, what Samuel is doing as a book, how it is functioning in God's Word as a particular historical book, in two books, right? is it's answering two questions. One is, why is there a king in Israel? I mean, if there were no Samuel, then you would be scratching your head as you went to the next book, Kings, right? One and two, it's thinking, I'm sorry, how did we move from judges to kings? Well, that question is answered in Samuel 1 and 2 because it is a transitional book. And it moves us from a theocracy, a confederacy, led by God, to a monarchy unified with a capital in Jerusalem. You heard it from our reading today. He makes Jerusalem the capital, which is Zion. Uh, Samuel himself is a transitional guy. So Samuel is a transitional book in this way, moving us from judges to a period of kingship, of monarchy. But Samuel himself is a transitional guy within the book of Samuel. And it's probably followed up, written by Nathan, uh, the prophet, we think, at least. That's a good educated guess because Samuel doesn't make it all the way through 1 Samuel, right? So he certainly didn't write 2 Samuel. He was not around. He is dead, we are told. Um, And so... He carries us from being a judge himself to a time of prophets. Namely, we're going to see in Kings, if you continue reading, Elisha and Elijah, or Elijah and Elisha, and many prophets that come during the various uh, episodes of kingship in Israel. So Samuel himself acts as a judge, a seer, which is kind of a technical term for prophet, one who sees things that others don't, a seer, a priest, and he also acts as a king-like leader, but then acts as a king-maker, one who anoints the first two kings of the United Kingdom of Israel. So, this dude has it going on, and so does his book, especially as a transitional book. And so, we're going to dial in 
And keep in mind that, you know, one of the questions that is being asked, why is there a king in Israel? And then secondly, as we move into the life of David, one of the things Samuel is obviously answering is this, what is the nature of that kingship? So why is there a king? And then what is the nature of that kingship? Is it like all the other nations? Or not? We'll pick up with uh, verse 6 of 16. And Samuel, remember Saul has just been rejected by God because of his disobedience. Now Samuel is told to go anoint another king from the house of Jesse. And so he says, well, hang on now. If I go over there, Saul's going to kill me. So apparently we already, Samuel is aware that Saul has a temper. And that is in particular against anyone else being king. <laughs> Uh, you know, because it's not real wise to sort of anoint somebody king when there's already a king, right? Unless you want to die or get into a fight or something. And so notice verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely <laughs> the Lord's anointed is before him. Notice, by the way, the seer isn't quite seeing properly. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh, Lord, looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. That's just red skinned. And had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel went rose up and went to Ramah. Jesus, thank you for your word. We pray now you would give us wisdom from your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we've flown over 1 Samuel so far, I just kind of want to Remind you, because we're only seeing each other week to week, and maybe you're just now joining in with this in this flyover of the book of Samuel. As we look out the window, one of the things you see immediately is a move from Eli, who is a priest, to Samuel, who is a prophet. That's the first transition within this transitional book and this transitional character. And so we move from this priest, who seems to be a pretty good guy for the most part, but his son's evil. To Samuel, who's a young boy, called to be a prophet and much more. 
really almost acting as some type of archbishop uh, within Israel. Then we saw last week the move from Samuel to Saul. And he cries about this. He wonders if he's being rejected. But it's not he that is being rejected, God tells him. Instead, it is the Lord, Yahweh, who is being rejected. I'll remind you that within the text, sometimes I'll say Yahweh because L-O-R-D in all caps in your Bible always represents the Tetragrammaton, which is the four letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, or however you pronounce it. No one knows for sure because the pronunciation was lost. They were too scared to say it for so long that it then became lost. And so we just say Yahweh. And Yahweh says, no, no, they didn't reject you, Samuel. They rejected me. I was the king. And yes, one of the lessons that come out of Samuel overall is going to be that he still is the king. Yes, Saul is anointed as king of Israel, but God is king over that king. David is anointed king over Israel, but God is king over the king. There are some key motifs, themes, that are also running. As you kind of look out the window, if you've ever been in a plane, you see bodies of water, you see rivers, and those rivers are interconnected. You'll see, you're like, oh, wow, and you can't quite see out your Oh, well, there it goes over there. And you see from a bird's eye view, there are certain themes that are interwoven into the movies you watch, into the shows that you enjoy, the books that you read, and so too in this historical narrative in Samuel. And these motifs, these themes run through the book as interwoven within the very fabric. And if seen... Notice the repetition here of seeing that we started with. If seen, then it is repetition even in the different stories. So, this weaving through, one of the things you'll notice is this. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. This is something that over and over, those who will humble themselves, the Lord raises in Samuel. And not only in Samuel. Back it up to the Pentateuch. Back it up to the Judges period. Joshua. Or fast forward anywhere in the book and you're going to see that God opposes those who are high and haughty and proud and can do it their self and he exalts those who are humble. Also, one of the streams that flow through Samuel is despite human evil, God is at work accomplishing his purposes. And if there's humans anywhere on the planet, there's going to be evil. And yet, God is using humans even within the evil that is happening. And he's working his plan. And God is going to raise up a messianic king. These themes are going to be hammered out as we move forward. I'm going to remind you of these pretty much every time that we we, uh, talk from here to the end of 2 Samuel. And I got to thinking as I reread 1 Samuel, and I finished it, you know, this week. It's fascinating that God is using 
events, not just words. Many of us want propositions. We just want to be told, what do we need to do? What do we not need? Just give it to me. And here comes somebody with a story. Well, let me tell you a story. I'm like, seriously, man, I don't want to listen to your story. But the times that someone has made me pause to listen to their stupid little story, that thing stuck more than the proposition. I still remember a time when a professor of mine cornered me, and he could have just confronted me about something, but instead he told me a story. I thought it was the stupidest thing. It made me mad, primarily because I saw myself in the story. And I still remember that story and the stupid professor who did it to me, you know? This is the way narrative works. You don't have to like narrative, but we must read it because it is the word of God. And we must reread it. And the more you familiarize yourself with the narrative, this historical narrative of Samuel, the more all of that greenery and bluish stuff that's down below becomes detailed. And we can say, ah, I see now what's going on. What is connected to what? And so this is the history that God chooses to highlight. God chose to highlight this story. I mean, we know about this period. This is the beginning of Iron Age, historically speaking. We have quite a bit of data on this time period. This is the turn of the millennium. Thousand. But God chose to tell this story not other stories that are being told. Aren't you glad he's um, not still recording stories? Because, I mean, I would hate my story to be recorded, you know? I mean, David, one thinks of David, and one might think of the adultery, or maybe the bravery, or maybe the disobedience. Or maybe the radical obedience. And I think that's part of why story strikes us as real. And not just propositions, but narrative. Is because we're more than one dimensional. And narrative captures that in the characters. David is a deep character. Saul is a deep character. These are not just weak characters. And I'm glad, for one, that God is not recording salvation history right now with me. Because to have my weaknesses on display for everyone, I try to keep them close at home, is a scary thing, isn't it? But David gets displayed for all to see, and he doesn't redact the material. Notice... He's king. He could have easily told the author, hey, by the way, um, wipe that part out. Classify that until the cows come home. He did not. It's the same thing we find with Peter. They would have surely protested. Hey, by the way, do we have to have that part in there where Jesus, my buddy and friend, calls me Satan? Couldn't we just maybe like, you know, I think he was using hyperbole. Couldn't we just interpret it differently? No. It needs to be told, and it needs to be told accurately. And this is what we have. Take 
Eli, for instance. At once he rears and trains Samuel, one of the greatest prophets. And yet he doesn't discipline his own sons or correct them. Take Samuel. He is used mightily by God to anoint the first two kings of Israel. He was the last and the most effective judge that we have. He's listed in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, right? With all the greats, Samuel. Yet, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 8.1, yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. These are dimensional characters. Characters of depth. Characters that look like us. Take Saul, chosen by God to be the first king. Known for his courage, his generosity, stood taller, striking appearance. Yet this big man was small in his own eyes. Always worried about what other people thought of him. So much so that he was willing to lose God to try to save face. Unwilling to repent to save himself and instead he loses God. Haven't you noticed that in yourself? I mean, sometimes I'm just, you know, well, oftentimes we're all amazed by people. Persons. Persons are unique. They're unrepeatable. They're not going to happen again. And they're deep. When, when we feel like we've got somebody figured out, we just don't know them well enough. You ever notice how quick we are to dismiss people that we don't know? Someone on TV, a talking head or something, some story we hear. We just dismiss them immediately. But the same sort of circumstance might happen to our spouse or our friend. And we're like, well, now. And we clarify we nuance. Why? Because we love them. We know them more than the person on TV. The person from afar, we don't know, and we make these generalizations. The person that we know well, that person is deep. Not totally understood by us. That's what makes relationships interesting, isn't it? I mean, Jessica and I have been together 15 years, 14 married. I still don't know the woman. She surprises me sometimes. Exactly. I'm trying to get to know her. The other week, someone prayed for me. And the prayer was so deep and pointed that it surprised me coming out of the mouth of this person. And I thought to myself, well, there you go. When you think you got somebody figured out, you don't have someone figured out. And I think that's one of the points Samuel is making in this book is that we need to be careful what we see. Not just the outward appearance. The outward appearance is deceiving. God looks upon the heart. And that's both good news and bad news. As we've stated before, it's good news because that means Marshall gets a chance. I had to look back at some of my transcripts the other week and I was like, oh, what a knucklehead. Why did I, you know, I just didn't care. 
And yet God, over and over again, is telling me, pursue more knowledge. It's like, I'm sorry, I think you've got the wrong guy. Doesn't he like to use our weaknesses? Can he even, the question is, use our strengths? Not according to Samuel. Remember, one of the streams that's interwoven, he exalts the humble. What we're willing to bring to him is, I need help with this. (laughs) He can help us with. But the things that we try to do ourselves, he sits back and has to watch us botch it up. Okay. And some of us, we botch it up and try to redo, 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 and we spend our life like that. You don't have to. That's the good news. He can take our weaknesses. Hear this, because somebody needs to hear this. He can take our weaknesses, the things that we're not good at, the things that we don't see ourselves doing, and he can perfect himself in us and his character in us. What a thought that is. But we must be willing to say, Dad, I need help. With all things construction, I just need help, all right? I'm not a construction dude, but I can do what I'm told. And it turns out all right once I do what I'm told. And the Lord sometimes like, hey, why don't you try that in other areas of your life too, man? I say, yes, sir. You ever say yes, sir, to God? I don't know, I just, that's the way I talk to him sometimes. Yes, sir, you know. I am his son after all, thanks be to God. <laughs> God writes these lessons in narrative forms for us to see. Notice in our text, there's a lot of seeing going on, isn't it? He looked at Eliab. Do not look on the appearance. The Lord sees man's heart. He doesn't look on the outward. Behold, here comes day. There's a lot of excuse me, seeing that is going on in chapter 16 because I think that's what's happening in the whole book. We're supposed to see within the narrative. Um, I haven't used this in a long time, so I'm going to use it now. In Lord of the Rings, at the beginning, Tolkien warns us, he says, look, don't read this as proposition. I'm, I'm ab-living here. Don't read this as propositional. I didn't write this with some kind of proposition that I wanted to force into the story. I wrote a story, and if you see something in it, there you go. But don't think that I just wrote it cheaply. It's its own story. I love that. I think that's beautiful. That's why sometimes I don't like illustrations is because they're too forced. But life. Life is the best illustrations we get. We are, are we not, the image of God? That is what we are supposed to be. And he highlights for us in these chapters, 16 through 31, several things that I want to burst fire on real quick. So bear with me. You know what burst fire is, right? Maybe a three-round burst, right, out of a, out of a weapon. So we're going to just very quickly. Notice... Chapter 16, Samuel anoints David. <laughs> now, remember, 15, Saul is rejected. So now 16, Daniel, uh, David is anointed. 
And as we've already said, it's hazardous to anoint a king when there already is one. Samuel knows this, but he's willing to obey God. Saul is the appointed king for the people, but David is the king king appointed by God. So God's spirit rests now on David, which the author is going to show you in 16 through 31, everything that Saul does is now made ineffectual. He's a disaster, and it's not because his policies have changed. It's not because he raised taxes or lowered them or built roads or didn't. It's because of the divine favor upon him. His disobedience led to failure. We kind of call this in the scholarly world the Deuteronomic principle, which is set out in Deuteronomy, and that is, if you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursings. And that's worked out all through the Old Testament. Thankfully, his grace comes along for us and for them and says, yes, you deserve this, but watch this. Samuel takes this big horn, I would imagine, fills it with oil and pours it all over David. (laughs) He's drenched. And as you already saw, all the sons, he's the eighth son, which which that number operates in the scripture as a, as a number of completion. Uh, not in the same way that seven does. It's almost a new completion. It's a new day. It's like a new week. And this is exactly the way it operates here with David. The other thing that happens here is the spirit leaves Saul and another spirit comes on Saul. That is an evil spirit that is sent from the Lord. Reminds us of the parable of Jesus that he tells in Luke 11, where he says, The unclean spirit left, they swept the house, and then that unclean spirit interestingly went and got seven other worse evil spirits, which then makes eight, and comes in to dwell. You see, it's not good enough that we are forgiven and cleaned. We must be Filled with the Spirit. We're never called to be statues of holiness, but instead broken vessels to be poured out. Just as the lady at Jesus' feet took that roughly $60,000 jar of perfume and broke it and spread it upon His feet, so too we, as highly valued to God, are to be broken and poured out for his world as a balm of healing. You are to be healing to someone. Isn't that an opportunity? You are. He said, nah, surely. You, yes, you. He said, I'm too, I, uh, that's all weaknesses. And guess what he likes to do with weaknesses? He likes to use them. Then we get David and Goliath, which is a a story that shows David's obedience. If we're looking closely at the text and seeing clearly, what we will see is that 
David sees more than everybody else. The insults that, that are being hurled from this giant Goliath, he takes offense to. Apparently no one had up to that point. They were just too scared for their own life. But he says, hang on, whoa, whoa, is this guy talking about Yahweh? Are you kidding me? Does he know who Yahweh is? Everybody's like, hey, chill out, dude. Go, go take care of the sheep is actually what they kind of tell him. Which is interesting because, remember, he was out tending the sheep. So it's a knock against him. Does he get all scared and start crying and whining and go back home? No. He says, what in the world, guys? We can't let this stand. This day the Lord will deliver you, talking to the giant, into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, why is he doing this? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord, Yahweh, saves, notice this, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And He will give you into my hand. <laughs> wow. I wonder today, just application, I wonder, it's, does anybody have a word like that for our day? Is anybody willing to stand up and say, you know what, I, this is enough of that. I'm ready, I'm ready to fight with God and I'm willing to stand up. I, I'm not a good fighter. I'm a little guy maybe. I'm too young. I'm whatever. Maybe too old. No, not with God. He uses both the young and the old and all those in between to accomplish his purposes. Because David's strength again comes at his anointing when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. My prayer this morning for all of us is that the Spirit would rush upon us as he anoints us with his oil of the Spirit. Because just as David was chosen, so too are we. We are the chosen, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood that we might show forth the praises of God. Not just any God, the God of the whole universe. When I sit down and do my devotions in the morning, I sometimes forget about that. I'm just ho-hum going through there, talking to the God of the universe, the King of kings and all-consuming fire. We just sang a song or either read from something that said He was coming on clouds with fire. I mean, then 18 through 20, Jonathan and David. This beautiful, manly friendship. I mean, you, you trust me, you don't get this kind of affection, a friendship, anywhere else in the Bible. Except for maybe when God says, you know, yeah, Moses was a friend of mine. Like, oh, wow, dang. I want to be a friend of yours, <laughs> you know? I mean, but, but this, this relationship with Jonathan, the son 
of Saul, who should be the heir to the kingdom, renounces his royalty and serves David. We're not talking about just some kind of, yeah, we're pals, man, we're real bros. No. We're talking about the scripture says he did chesed with David, which is covenant faithfulness. It's the same relationship used to God and his people Israel. He binds himself to us and Jonathan binds himself to David. The language is so strong that at times some people have interpreted this to be a homosexual relationship between them. Because it says things like their love for each other was deeper, greater than the love of women. But the text never says they knew each other. It says they loved each other. You know, the way that Adam knew Eve and a baby came. That's sexual knowing. There is no hint of sexual knowing here. This is a strong friendship and we should not allow evil to hijack the beauty of this covenant relationship between Jonathan and David. Um, and then Saul tries to kill him. You know, I mean, the rest of, the, the rest of these chapters is basically a cat and mouse game of Saul trying to get David. It's, it reminded me this morning, it came to my mind, wily coyote, you know? He's wily, cunning, but stupid, you know, he's, oh, oh, you know, and he jumps down. The roadrunner, that's what I thought about. It's David's a roadrunner. He's, you know, even, even when the plan is perfect, even when the trap has been set, there, there just seems to be no way out. He's gone. And Coyote is left with an anvil on his head from Acme. I think that sums up pretty good the cat and mouse chase between Saul and David. He tried to kill him outright with a spear. Remember, he was playing the lyre like a little harp. And it was to calm the evil spirit. So interestingly, he's, he's playing the harp and he's also slinging a slingshot to kill. This guy's a lover and a fighter. He's a poet, we know. He wrote most of the Psalms. And yet he's valiant in battle. Courageous. Sinner and saint. He also makes David commander of his military militia in order to kill him. Oh, yeah. You're going to be on the front lines fighting with the, you know, Navy SEALs, fighting with the, with the um, Green Berets, and I'm going to send you out there by yourself to die. He doesn't die. He marries him to his daughter Merab, hoping that the Philistines will kill him because there needed to be some kind of payment for the marriage. Then he marries him to his daughter Michal and asks for a hundred Philistine foreskins. So we get into circumcision again. He says, you can marry her if you bring those in. And he was hoping they would skin him before he skinned them. He brings brings back more than enough in complete victory. Everything Saul does backfires 
And as Saul pursues him, at one point, the men that he sends, the Spirit comes upon them. They start prophesying like the prophets. They're before Samuel. Samuel's standing there, and they, they come out here trance-like prophesying. And then Saul's like, well, I'm going to come down there myself. Now, remember, when he, the Spirit originally rushed on him, he prophesied. And they said, whoa, is Saul among the prophets? Now, it's a very different scene. I don't have time to get into how it's different. But it is a very different scene because he's in disobedience to God, trying to do something disobedient. But the Spirit rushes upon him anyway. He starts prophesying, going into a trance, starts taking off his clothes. He's stripped naked and lies there for the rest of the day as Samuel's in Ramah. David's out here. Couldn't get to him. Stripped of not only his clothing, but his kingship. That's the point. If we're seeing what the author is saying, he's stripped of divine favor. So, without the Spirit, he's left undone. And so are we. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you clothe us us in your righteousness, in your holiness? Don't we need His? We're undone without Him. We're naked and don't even know it. He evades, he escapes, and ultimately exposes Saul for who he is. One time Saul goes and covers his feet in a cave. It wasn't he put dirt on there, he dropped his pants, okay? He had to use the restroom in a cave. And guess who's in that cave? David, along with about 600 or 200 other guys. David sneaks up, grabs his coat, tears a piece of it off. Saul finishes using up the bathroom, hopefully he washed his hands and all, comes out, and David says, Hey, bud, you seen this? Another time, they're sleeping. He comes into the camp with a crew of men, takes his spear. <laughs> One of his valiant men says, Hey, uh, by the way, I could just <laughs> stuff this guy into the ground right here with his spear. No, we don't touch the Lord's anointed. Even though he had lost divine favor, David was unwilling to grasp at the kingship. That was a lesson for me this week as I was putting this together. Even though it was the right way, he didn't, even even though it was the right thing to do, he didn't grasp to make the moment happen. He waited on God. I don't know how you want to apply that, but it applied to me something I'm still chewing on. David still respects God's anointed and allows God to judge and execute justice, not himself. And then, of course, the women keep singing this song. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, which every time something bad happens after that in the narrative... Even Saul, in 27 through 31, will confess that he's doing wrong and continue. And then he goes over the top. He says, look, I'm in this battle. i got to have a word from God because he's asking for a word from God. And it says specifically, God didn't say anything to him. Now the whole cat and mouse game, David is also inquiring of the Lord. And the Lord is saying, okay, go right, go left.
Saul finally says, I got to hear a word from Samuel. I miss that old boy because now he's dead. <laughs> the text just simply says, Samuel died. It's like, oh, okay, well, oh, uh, no, no, okay. Just very brief. He gets a medium to perform a necromancy, which is calling up the dead, in order to talk to Samuel. Interestingly, in the text, it's not her magic that does it. It just simply says, Samuel came up from the ground, <laughs> which, is, which is, we're thinking it's Sheol, but even so, it, it doesn't particularly say Sheol there, but nonetheless, it's the place of the dead. Samuel comes up and starts talking to him. Of course, everybody's kind of freaked out by this. Um, as, as he's consulted a witch, which is disobedience, and against Samuel's will, bringing him up. He said, what are you doing? I don't want to come up. And then, at the end, Saul and his son's fate is sealed in Samuel's words. Tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. Verse 19. To speak with the dead is to join the dead. We are forbidden. Even in death, the author doesn't give as much press for Saul and his sons as he does to David's victory. David was warring in the south. Saul took his sons and his army up to the north to fight the Philistines. There's little press given to the fact that they are laid out dead on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines next day come out, strip them, same term used, strip them, they decapitate uh, Saul, put his armor in their temple to the Ashtoreth, sex goddess, and then they pin his body to their city gates along with his sons. Then a group of valiant men go out and rescue their bodies during the night and they burn them and that's the end of Saul. And it's the end of his sons. And it's the end of his kingship. And it's the end of his lineage. The Messiah will not come through Saul's house. But David's. So what do we see in these chapters? (laughs) I think we see that we need to see differently. We must see with the eyes of faith. Only given by the Spirit. And we must repent if we see our circumstances, if we see our spouse, our friends, people, work, issues, whatever in our life, in a way that God doesn't see. Give us your eyes, O God. Give me, God, your eyes to see by faith. Heal our blindedness. Just as replete is the Gospels with blind people as this story is with people who can't see the proper things. Take heed to the fact that the way we see things is the way we act, and what we act upon has consequences. That's the end of 1 Samuel. It ends on a somewhat sad note. We'll pick up differently as David sings a song 
in the next episode for his friend and his former king. Lord, may you help us see as you see. Give us eyes to see. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.